A warm welcome to Ask Agra, Family History Question Time, a series of podcasts recorded in a panel discussion format featuring key professional genealogists from the Association of Genealogists and Researchers in Archives across England and Wales, joined by special guests from the world of family history research. Our panel today will focus on research before 1837. What resources can researchers use in the absence of civil registration certificates and census returns? What are the essential record sets that researchers need to investigate? Joining us for this podcast recording are our moderator, Sarah Williams, the editor of Who Do You Think You Are magazine. Sarah has been editing the magazine since 2007 and indeed was responsible for its launch. This month sees the publication of issue number 168. And if anyone knows which questions about family history research are most frequently posed, it must be her. She's a complete force in the field of researching family history and has helped to promote interest in the subject relentlessly. Sarah is joined by Sharon Grant of Grantshire Genealogy, who is not only an AGRA member, but she's also the outgoing chair of council. Sharon's practice is based in London and she has over 30 years experience of research across the British Isles, backed up with a history degree from Goldsmiths College London. Grace Tappan of Grace Ancestry is based in Northwest England with over 15 years experience. She holds the advanced diploma in local history from Oxford University and also specializes in non-conformist research as well as tracing company and business records. Grace is also an AGRA member. Like Grace, Simon Martin also hails from Northwest England and is another long-standing AGRA member. Simon is a lay preacher in the Church of England and as such has a particular interest in church and diocesan records, as well as bands registers, wills and marriage licenses. A science graduate, he has been involved in professional genealogical research since 2000. Finally, our lineup is completed by AGRA member Jill Blanchard of Past Search. Jill has been researching, writing and speaking about family history for over 20 years and has an impressive academic record in history, sociology and politics. She is a most familiar face in our profession, giving talks and running courses at various shows, fairs and conferences. And as if that wasn't enough, she is also a published author on subjects ranging from house histories to Tudor and Stuart England, to women's suffrage in Norwich, to Huguenots. And she is also a regular contributor to Who Do You Think You Are magazine. Welcome one and all, and now to hand over to Sarah. Thank you for joining us today to discuss pre-1837 records. Grace, I was wondering if you could kick things off for us, because we're going to be talking about going further back in time, but how far back do you think someone can reasonably expect to take their family history research? Well, reasonably, you should be able to get back to the early 1800s and possibly the late 1700s for at least some of your lines, because you've got your census records, you've got your birth, marriage and death registrations and they're key for this for example in the 1851 census you could have someone who was born in 1770 1780 and the 1851 census will give their place of birth so you've got those opportunities to go a bit further back but after that that's when the digging and the delving starts. Thanks Grace that's really interesting and I think that people do often have an expectation, don't they, from watching the television programme that they'll be able to go further back. Isn't that true, Sharon? Uh, Absolutely. The television programme is very popular and people think that they can get to what we call that gateway ancestor, which links you through to royalty. Um, And indeed, who do you think you are? 
the television programme have done a couple of episodes around that, most notably the Daddy Dyer one. And um, I've actually worked with a client recently who does share that gateway ancestor uh, with Danny Dyer. And so, you know, you would think, oh, well, off you go. But it's, it's quite unusual, I would imagine. And also, you need to be careful. We all love the uh, television programme, but it is one of the few genealogy records that is not sourced. So you need to verify what you're looking at and just be careful. But as I say, it's not common and don't expect to go into family history expecting to be related to William the Conqueror or whoever else. It's finding that documentary evidence, isn't it? Jill, you were saying that there's sometimes the documentary evidence can be for quite ordinary people as well. It's not necessarily just royalty. Oh, yes. I mean, I would say that I've done quite a lot of research that's gone back certainly into the 1700s and quite often into the 1600s. It becomes what we call diminishing returns before that. And it is much more difficult to get back earlier, but it is possible and it isn't always the rich, it isn't always the titled. I mean, sources such as parish registers, poor law, probate and so on are all the sources that we use. And it is perfectly possible to go back. But of course, there are regional differences in what survives. You may have, I've got a case recently where the parish registers do not survive before 1704. But I still managed to take that family back much further through other sources. That's fantastic, isn't it? But I think, Simon, I know you were thinking that sometimes it's important to manage people's expectations there. That's right, isn't it? Yes, because often the records just aren't there that people are expecting or they're looking over a much wider area and they don't know which parish people come from, especially if there isn't a good sequence of baptisms after 1837 that they can link into. It's especially common when you've got common surnames, particularly difficult to trace them back. And also, uh, Lancashire people in particular, very unimaginative what they call their children. And so you get lots of Johns and lots of Sarahs and lots of Elizabeths and uh, you can't find the right one. It gets harder as the further you go back, doesn't it? I mean, uh, we're talking today about pre-1837 records, but Jill, can you tell us a bit about why we've chosen that date and what the main records are for this period? Well, the reason we choose that date is because civil registration of births, deaths and marriages, the first national system for recording those, began on 1st of July 1837. But of course, parish registers of baptisms, marriages and burials began in 1538 and they continue after civil registration. So potentially, if they survive, you might be able to get back into the 1500s using just the parish registers. But as Simon said, Lots don't survive, you may have lots of duplicate names, but that's the main reason we look at that date, because before 1837, primarily we're into local records rather than national records such as civil registration. Do you have a favourite from this period? Well, I don't have one favourite, but I've chosen wills, um, because I think that lots of people assume that wills won't be relevant to their ancestral search, because it's only going to be the rich or the well-to-do, or, you know, the reasonably prosperous. But in fact, you can find, for every person that wrote a will, there's at least one other person named in it. And you might find somebody in a extended family that's done a bit better than some of the others. So you might have an unmarried aunt or uncle, for example, and I found that where they left bequests to their nieces and nephews, who they said, I believe, are receiving poor relief. 
and also servants, employees, and also about the local history. So I would say that everyone should try and check out wills and think a little bit wider, looking at the female lines, looking at potential employers and other connections when they do so. Yes, I know. Unmarried maiden aunts are often a goldmine, aren't they, on, on wills? <laughs> Always Absolutely. look out for those. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the one I mentioned earlier about a parish register's not surviving before 1704, it's a parish in Norfolk in the Fens, right on the edge of Cambridgeshire. And the wills have what have helped me sort out the mm. relationships, particularly because I was quite fortunate. There was quite a few illegitimacies and found people intermarrying with the same surnames. And quite a lot of this family have gone to great lengths to describe relationships. Are they thoughtful of them? <laughs> it was. It doesn't always, doesn't always happen like that. Some of them are just, I leave everything to my wife. You think, yeah. what's, what's her name? <laughs> yeah. No, I absolutely, I love wills. I think they're, they're a fantastic resource. So do any of the others here have any records they particularly find interesting in this period? Um, Simon? I've been finding balance registers particularly interesting. Uh, these are the balance that are called in the three weeks before people get married. A lot of people don't even look at them uh, if you see married by bands. But I've been finding that in Manchester and Bolton, they're giving the places that they're living just before the marriage. Um, some of the Manchester ones, they have an investigation into bride and grooms to where they've come from, what jobs they've had for a long time. And these are all written in the margin. Uh, and Manchester Cathedral ones actually go back to 1733, when they usually start in 1754. So they're particularly interesting in that early period, and it's helped um, a recent client to get back. Excellent. So what about you, Grace? Well, there's lots, but one in particular that I do like are the settlement and removals. People were given settlement certificates to prove that they were entitled to poor relief in a parish if they fell on hard times and if they did fall on hard times then um, they would go before the overseers to be examined to see were they entitled to be in the parish and if they weren't then they were ordered to be removed. A recent research I've done for a client uh, in Lancashire and as um, Simon said earlier they all had very similar names and this particular family were called Entwistle and they lived about a mile from the village of Entwistle in another village and I'd trace them back but kind of hit a brick wall just couldn't find anything further in in all the parish registers and things but then I found a removal order which was ordering them to be removed 10 miles west which was an area that hadn't been mentioned any other times before but they were ordered to be removed and conveyed out of the township of Edgeworth to the township of Horwich which wasn't a place I would have expected this family to have been. And because of that removal order, it also confirmed the wife's name, the children. It included a child that had not come across who'd been baptised in another parish. And obviously, from 1720, I then knew where to go and conduct the research, which was 10 miles west of where I'd been looking. So, yeah, they're really, really useful when you find one. Excellent. And more and more starting to come online now as well. Not, I mean, not yes. many, but there's a few coming online, which is, is obviously helpful. And, right. and Sharon, what, what about you? Have you got a favourite record or a useful record you'd like to highlight from this period? Well, um, as others have said, there's many, but I have chosen apprenticeship records because I have found them really useful in like breaking down those brick walls or finding locations. So 
there are two types of apprenticeship records. You know, the first are privately arranged between the parents and the master, and then you've got parish apprenticeships, which are organised by essentially the poor law authorities as a means of offloading. <laughs> That's a term that's uh, loaded, but offloading their orphans and abandoned children. Looking at those, it's quite incredible sometimes because obviously there's a link between son and father, but also um, you can find widowed mothers mentioned and named, and you can also find other relatives mentioned. So they were really helpful for me with two boys that were apprenticed in Coventry, and they were apprenticed to two uncles. So through that, with other evidence of a death record and a marriage certificate, you know, I was able to establish the parents of the father, even though there's no baptism to be found. But I have the baptisms of the seven other boys, all boys. And I think also talking about the parish apprenticeships, you tend to get more, more girls mentioned. I think people would agree with me on that because they are apprenticed by the poor law authorities into domestic service. They seem to be mentioned a lot more than um, they would be in other records. So it can be a sort of a building block in gathering evidence from all sorts of sources. A lot of this is about gathering evidence from lots of sources, isn't it? And I, I think one of the things with apprenticeship records, because they're very formulaic, they can be easier to read than some other documents from this era. And, and this is one of the problems. Handwriting has changed considerably over the centuries. I've especially had trouble with some probate, some wills. They can be very tricky to read. Grace, have you got any tips for reading old documents? Well, one little tip is just look at it and find words that you actually can read and then look for the letters maybe in those words that match up with the ones that you can't read and piece it together. If you've got other old documents, not just the one you're looking at, look on those as well for, for words and letters that match. That's just, just a little tip. Has anyone else got any other tips that, for reading old documents? Jill? Yes, the National Archives has got a really useful handwriting guide and you can do practice and compare your version with theirs. But so does the University of Leicester because they run an MA in local history and they have lots of document examples on their special collections section of their website for free. You can check your own transcribing and compare their version with your own. It's a really excellent free resource. The National Archives paleography course has been up there for ages and I'm very familiar with it, but I didn't know about the University of Leicester one, so I shall have a look at that. Thank you. Simon, have you got any tips for reading old documents? Well, I'm a bit old, old hand, and, and I say just keep practising. And problems I have are normally with surnames and place names if I don't know the area. So I normally get the client to give me a list of surnames and place names that might appear in a will. And it's so surprising that you can then read a lot more of the will using uh, the surnames and place names. So it's just a case of trying to compile as much information as you can beforehand and um, just keep comparing printed transcripts against originals and keep practising. A group of us used to practise once a week. And Sharon, did you have any tips? I would just emphasise that um, spelling wasn't standardised, you know, pre-1837, and that's especially so of place names and surnames. Spellings can vary regionally, according to accent, and the person that is recording the information may not be familiar with the local accent, 
And so they can record a different spelling. So, you know, keep your mind open to um, variations. Excellent. Records going online is transforming research. I think we can all agree with that. But I mean, when I started out in family history, it was all about getting census records and then the BMD indexes online. But now we're starting to get a lot of pre-1837 records coming up. Most importantly, parish registers, you know, find my past, ancestry, family search, free reg. They've all got impressive and growing collections of parish registers. But it's it's a long way from it all being online, wouldn't you agree, Sharon? Oh, absolutely. And whatever site you're using online, you need to check the coverage because one site may have the Leicestershire records on another site might have the Norfolk ones. So you, you really need to be careful about checking the coverage and also checking what time span they cover because they're not all complete. There will be certain sections from a particular county online. Um, so, you know, just because you can't find somebody, it may be that that particular registry is not online. And checking not just years, but parishes as well, yes. um, yeah, I find, because you'll get both say Fibre Pass and Ancestry will have Yorkshire collections and you might think there's overlap and, and there might be, but there usually isn't. They've usually done a deal with different record offices and uh, yes, you need to be careful. But I mean, checking online coverage is important, but um, it's also important to know what's available in the archives. Isn't that so, Simon? It's very important to look at what's in the archives and try and get back to the original if you can. Um, I use the National Index of Parish Registers which are these orange books that um, are by Society of Genealogists. And they're quite useful because they give you transcripts, their locations, and sometimes with lost parish registers, what the alternatives are. But it's also important to remember that not everybody was Anglican. So you lost nonconformists, particularly towards the end of the period, running up to 1837. Even a lot of people aren't attending the parish church. And so they're getting baptisms and burials done with nonconformist chapels. And then, particularly in Lancashire, we've got a lot of Roman Catholic records, and these are shockingly in Latin, but it turns out to be very formulaic. So you look for the word fuit, and after the word fuit is given the name of the the person. So um, after a while, you get your eye in on how to read those as well. So also, you may find that people are getting married in in the parish church, but that they had to do that between 1754 and 1837 even if they were nonconformists or even Roman Catholics. But often you get in the Roman Catholic register another entry of the marriage the day before or the day after where they married before God in the Roman Catholic Church. So it can be quite confusing. So you have to, again, we're going back to this idea of looking at all the different resources, checking out all kinds of options. And that might be why you can't find a baptism is another thing to think about there. So, Jill, have you got anything to say about finding parish registers and how you go about that? Yeah, I would always, always check with the local county record officers and talk to the staff there who are very knowledgeable because most parish registers and other local sources are held in one county record office. But you may find that somewhere boundary changes have happened or actually in an adjacent county because of that. Or occasionally, very rarely these days, but it still does happen. They might still be held by the church. And it's their responsibility to oversee the care of parish records, including registers. As a result, they are the experts on knowing where the records are held. And you can compare their catalogues with the online listings to see what is missing online as well. 
I mean, that's useful because, again, knowing what is actually online and, and what is available in the archives is very important. Mm-hmm. And Grace, you had a sort of a recommendation for finding out what's online, haven't you, and what's been digitised? Yeah, there's the two sites, which is the Family Search and Januki, and both are useful. The Family Search wiki pages will show you what records are held for each church. And it might not just be the usual ancestry or find my past, but it'll show you the local online parish clerk sites and different things like that. But always double check because they're not always necessarily up to date. So, for example, it might say, oh, it's only got baptisms up to 1720, but on ancestry, they've actually got up to 1795 because things change all the time. But it's a good starting point just to get a quick reference for, oh, well, that might be the place to start looking, but always look at the other places too. Because it's not just parish registers that are going online. Um, The subscription sites are starting to strike deals with local archives to put quite a variety of records online, including those generated by the parish in its sort of administrative role. So, Jill, I know you're very interested in parish chest records. I am. I think they're often very underused um, because it's a generic term for everything that was held in the parish chest. And the parish was the one the main unit of local government into the 19th century. And as a result, they were responsible for all sorts of things, administering poor relief, which Grace talked about earlier with uh, settlement records and so on. But also there's a huge range of other records that might tell us about our ancestors and their lives. For example, church wardens and overseers accounts, vestry minute books often include references to poor relief, to payments towards illegitimate children. And I've actually used those to identify the father of illegitimate children in some cases. They also will include references to people being removed where maybe the removal orders don't survive. And then you've got all the taxation records, the accounts and so on, which um, widen it out because most taxation was the responsibility administered by the parish. So there's this vast range of records about the local parishes. They don't all survive, sadly, but where they do, they're really worth investigating. And they can include things like parish apprenticeships, which Sharon mentioned, and just everything to do with running a local area from work, poverty, collecting rates and so on, repairing the roads, and even legal disputes. Talking of legal disputes, I mean, the other great administrative body, I suppose you could call it, was the local quarter sessions. Grace, can you tell us something about them? Yeah, quarter session records, well, they're a goldmine because there's a wealth of information that you can find there. So they were the local courts that met four times a year, hence the word quarter. And in some counties, they can survive from the 15th century. In Lancashire, they survived from 1523 onwards. But in most counties, you're going to get them from at least the 17th century onwards. And they, like the parish chest, give um, a glimpse into everyday life of your ancestors. So you've got two parts to it. You've got the administrative records. So you've got alehouse licenses. You've got the appointments of the overseers and the constables. You've got your list of jurors and tax lists. So you're not just looking for your ancestors who were the black sheep of the family. You're also going to find the ancestors who are upstanding members of the parish as well. Um, And then you've got the punitive records. So as we've alluded to, you've got the administration of the poor laws. So 
you know, you've got um, your bastardy orders and your removal orders and non-payment of taxes and tithes. But then you've got your criminal records as well. So you've got your general misdemeanours, you know, bits of theft and thievery. Uh, and it goes on to assault and murder and things like that and calendars of prisoners. And the list goes on and on and on. There's just so much in quarter sessions. I think you need a whole session just to do quarter session records. Yes, I think that's absolutely the case. And not an enormous number of them online at the moment. And one of the things I'd say, and also with Parish Chest, is, you know, if you do have a subscription to, say, Ancestry or Find My Past, one of these things, it does give you a chance to look at some of these records, even if they aren't in the area you're interested in, get yourself familiar with them, and then you can go to the archive, you'll know what you're looking for, and you'll get an idea of whether it's something that's likely to be useful for your your research. And, and one quarter session record that I know isn't online yet, but you were talking about uh, earlier, Simon, do tell us a bit about the Chester prison bread lists. I had a client who wanted to prove that one of her ancestors was in Chester prison. And I discovered a Chester prison bread list and it lists each prisoner and how much bread they were given each day. So I knew exactly how many days this person was in Chester prison and each prisoner was named in the list. So it's quite an interesting and fascinating uh, source. Very interesting. I know we've covered in the magazine some of these similar lists for workhouses, but not normally with names. So amazing that they showed what they were eating. So how significant can occupations be in pre-1837 research? I know, Sharon, you were saying earlier that you like apprenticeship records. Can you tell us a bit more about them or uh, where you can find them? Because they sound wonderful, but what's the survival rate? It varies from region to region and from parish to parish. So I don't have an estimate for the survival rate, but it can be brilliant in some places and poor in others. I think generally occupations and the importance of them can be overlooked. I'm always quite surprised when I'm contacted by a client about pre-1837 research, you know, and they become stuck and they, they hardly ever mention the occupation of the individuals involved. And I've discussed apprenticeship records, but with occupations, they do go from father to son, not always. And particularly if you've got somebody with a particularly common name and you've got two candidates for the father, obviously if you've got a goldsmith and a tinsmith, it helps you concentrate where your research should be, as well as filling in the social history around uh, that time and giving some colour to the lives of these people. In terms of occupations, you know, in terms of the professions, what we would know is the professions, there's lots of membership associations, there's lots of records on all the sites that we've already mentioned, and the same applies to apprenticeship records. I mean, I wouldn't... um, Overlooked, though, that there's been a lot of work done by volunteers on indexing these records, and many of them aren't online. I think in two examples that I have used is the apprenticeship index produced by the Coventry Family History Society. And then Jill has spoken about poor law records. You know, they are indexed in a lot of local archives. I mean, I actually solved one case by finding a reference in the indexes, which was in the solicitor's bills that were submitted to poor law authorities for payment. And that was about the arrangements to be made for an apprenticeship for an orphan child. And, you know, within that, it also mentioned the grandparents and where they were located and their names. And 
the solicitor obviously had to have contact with them. At the end of the day, they weren't willing to take the child in. So, you know, there's lots of places, but don't forget the work of others that have already done indexing. Yes, these indexes are a wonderful thing, indexes. Uh, just a quick question, actually. I'm was under the impression that there's much more survival with apprenticeship records connected to parish apprenticeships and sort of poor law rather than more than private apprenticeships. That's right, isn't it? So the private ones going from father to son, possibly a smaller survival rate. They're more likely to be in, in personal collections, aren't they, I suppose? But yes, occupations, obviously very important. And I understand that you and Jill worked together on a project that had uh, connections with some rather famous. Yes, this work was around the London Livery Company's Jill, wasn't it? Yeah, I was uh, writing a biography about Vice Admiral John Lawson, who was a key figure in some of the events of the English Civil Wars. And he originated from Scarborough. And unfortunately, Scarborough Parish registers were for that period, don't survive. But his will gave me a clue to some... I was trying to find out more about his background. So I, I asked Sharon to do research for me personally into Freeman and apprenticeship records in London because his will referred to his cousin and his cousin's son, and his cousin was a citizen of London. And she found the apprenticeship records and Freeman's records for me, which helped me break through... Obviously, he could never find his baptism, but it helped me identify a lot more relatives and actually led me to a lot more other sources too. And among the other records that she found were references to other people that were obviously related to the same family. It also helped, as a very sort of sideways little piece, identify the one person in the Peeps' diaries that the editors were never quite certain who it was. And this was John Lawson's, the son of John Lawson's cousin, who was called Samuel Lawson. And the editors who did this fantastic work on Pepys's diaries over many years were not quite sure who Samuel Lawson was. Uh, John Lawson appears in Pepys's diaries quite a lot. And they suggested he could be John's son. He wasn't. He was his cousin's son. So I've been able to tell them that we can now identify who he was. That's nice <laughs> when that happens. And yes. Simon, other occupational records, we were just talking there about livery companies. And of course, there's also guild roles. And what can you say about those? Because they're very similar to the livery companies, but they tend to be out of the provinces. So there's a particularly good series for York, which go right from medieval times onwards. And they're actually published and printed. So many of the main libraries have copies of these and we've been using them for surname origins when people are starting to get surnames because they go back that far that some of the people don't have surnames. Wow. So what sort of period do you find you'd use Guild Records for? What, what period can they cover? They can cover right through to the modern guilds of uh, Preston. Mm, which is excellent. Preston have particularly good records, don't they? They do. And, uh, the guild roles, I can see you can actually, uh, they've been published and transcribed, so making them even more accessible, which is what we love. And then, of course, there are some occupations that particularly have good survival, good records to use, aren't there? So I, I particularly work on clergy. So we have clergy records and at ordination, deacon, the cleric has to supply a baptism certificate or they could get rebaptized at the cathedral if they weren't unsure whether they'd been baptized before. And um, 
of course, a lot of clergy are being ordained in dioceses well away from where they're born. So these actually link them back to their to their baptism family and um, you're able to trace back from that. And where would you find those? They would be with the ordination papers. So for Chester Diocese, they would be at Cheshire Record Office within the diocesan series. Thank you. Well, so does uh, anyone have any final tips for pre-1837 research? Uh, I do. I think it's important to get to know the area that you're researching in the local area because you need to know how it was laid out, where the churches were, um, because you may be looking in a particular parish church, but the ancestor may have lived on the border and they may have been being baptised in a church over the border in another parish. Um, Some maps is a really important Mm. one to, to use. I always have a map available when I'm doing my research so I know exactly what it is where I'm looking what's going on and also to have a little bit of local knowledge about what was what was happening nationally and locally were the things that were causing migration at the time and all these things affect your research you've got to put it into context as to what you're looking for Uh, maps are a really good source to use alongside everything else I've certainly found um, sometimes if you can't find someone in a parish, looking at the road system and things like that can help. So the parish you think is the neighbouring parish might not have been the easiest one to get to. That's uh, right. So I always find that worth knowing. Where the local market town is, all of that, very helpful. So thank you, Grace. And uh, any words of warning from anyone for this period? Um, yes, I think we would all warn people against taking information that they find on online trees as fact. You know, many of them aren't sourced or they're just they're just bringing in data from other ancestry trees that aren't properly researched. So you need to be very, very cautious. And I think other people do this as well. I tend to actually not to look at them until I've actually done my own research for a client. That's how wary I am of them. There is occasionally the uh, a useful tip, let's put it that way. Yes, you have to be very wary of some of the research that you might find other people have done online. I think people are very quick to take some of these hints and and not properly look at them. And I think that's obviously one of the values of employing a professional researcher. Wouldn't you agree, Sharon? Yes, I would. And as chair of AGRA, I'm all for people hiring an AGRA genealogist. And because I think there is there is value and there's added value in that our members and associates will be able to interpret records. They know where the records are. I think most of all, they've got a breadth of experience. I'm still amazed about the types of documents that I've been coming across, you know, and had to research over the 12 years that I've been doing this professionally. And that never would have happened researching my own personal family history. And um, I think that is a real value for me. And that comes from experience. So, you know, we would all say hire an agrogenealogist and you'll get good value. We've certainly got a lot of years of experience here with us today. So thank you, all of you. Um, It's been very interesting. That brings us to the end of this podcast covering pre-1837 research. So one area we haven't included in our discussion today is military records, but the good news is that the next Ask Agra podcast covers precisely this area. So for all of you listening at home, 
feel free to send in any questions you may have about today's topic, although I'll say not specific brick wall questions, but general questions about the topic, please send them into our panel at askagra at agra.org.uk and we'll attempt to help. So my thanks once more to our panel today, Grace Tabern, Jill Blanchard, Sharon Grant and Simon Martin. My name is Sarah Williams and thank you for joining us. <laughs>